You are listening to the New Spring Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. We want everyone everywhere to have an everyday relationship with Jesus, and we hope that this helps you do just that. Good morning, everybody, every campus. Uh, It is so good to see you in this room and see you virtually, whether at another campus or watching online. My name is Meredith, and I get to be a part of our teaching team here at New Spring. And let me tell you, it is just I love y'all so much. I'm so thankful to be a part of this church. It is actually one of the greatest honors and joys of my life. And today's gonna be incredible. And I don't just say that because that's what pastors say at the beginning. I say that because anytime the word of God is open and proclaimed, miracles are possible as the spirit moves. Amen? Amen. So we're gonna jump in on week two of our Gospels series where we are just taking the four weeks leading up to Easter and we are gonna look at each gospel story and how it portrays the beauty of Jesus Christ. Easter also is four weeks away. (laughs) How insane is that? Time, slow down. Okay, but to get us started this morning, I just wanted to get us thinking around something. And this is like, some of y'all will feel me in this, okay? The question is, how do you really know who anybody is? You know, like, how do you really know? And obviously you interact with them personally, but also I think the way you really get to know somebody is you ask a wider group of people. For example, if you're going to say, well, who, who's Meredith really? You're going to get a different answer based on who you ask. You ask the creative team that I just led, they're going to give you some different answers. You ask my former roommates, they're going to give you some different answers. You ask my former college teammates, they're going to give you some different answers. My mom and dad, they're probably going to give you the best answers. You know, my former Fuse group. And it's not that any of them are wrong, but by getting a a collection of answers on who is someone really, you're going to get a more full picture on who that person actually is. And I get us to think about this because here's the question we're going to come around today. Who is Jesus really? Who is Jesus really? Because based on who you ask, you're going to get a slightly slightly different answer. That's why we're coming around Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because we're digging into each of them to get the answer to who is Jesus really? And based on which one of them you ask, you're going to get a slightly different vantage point of who Jesus is. And the more you get those vantage points, the more we get a clear picture of who Jesus really is. And I just want to encourage, I want to look straight at the camera and just as directly from the beginning as I can, encourage us church, or maybe you're here and you don't really come to church, you're not, you don't even really, not sure if you believe in this thing. I wanna tell you the answer to this question is far too eternally important for you to settle for what somebody else tells you about him. It is time for us, church, unbeliever, agnostic, saint that just came in and you're not sure what you're doing here, I am begging us almost to dig into this question to get a true picture and answer. To not settle for what just the church told you, to not just settle for what um, somebody who's in pain told you, to not just settle for an article that you read, but for us together today to come in all humility and say, Jesus, who are you really? 
And last week, we looked at Matthew, who gave us his vantage point. Brad got to preach this. It was beautiful of that those who the world has written out, Christ has written in. And this week, we're going to get the viewpoint of our guy, Mark, in the Gospel of Mark. Now, I'm going to go ahead and give us the answer straight up front to who Mark says Jesus really is. And then we're going to look at the ways that Mark reveals to us that Jesus is this person. But there's a theme that pops up all over Mark that, y'all heard of the red car syndrome? It's a phenomenon. We've all experienced it, whether you realize it or not. But it's that once you buy a red car, you start seeing just a red car every year, a 2008 red Camry. You never saw them before. Now, all of a sudden, you bought a 2008 red Camry, and you're just, there's a red Camry, there's a red Camry, there's a red Camry, there's a red Camry. There's other, like, more scientific names for this phenomenon that are too hard to pronounce, so this is way easier to remember, but essentially, it's called red car syndrome. You on a shake of heads, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so this theme that I'm about to bring to us in Mark is something that once you see it, it's just popping up everywhere in Mark. You're seeing it everywhere. And the answer to that, the thing that we keep seeing over and over and over again is this, that Jesus is the suffering servant whose pain and sacrifice has secured our salvation. This answer right here is thick. And I can't wait to help unpack it for us. But who is Jesus really? Well, Mark would tell us over and over and over again, Jesus is the suffering servant whose pain and sacrifice has secured our salvation. And I want to show us this by showing five, there's many ways, but I want to show us today five different ways that the gospel of Mark, this theme just keeps popping up. And I'm actually going to show it because I wanted it to just like run in our minds the whole time as I'm teaching. Um, You're going to see it come up actually on this big screen behind me. But the first thing that you see in this answer actually pops up in Mark's writing style. So Mark, John Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. And listen, I already know that you're like, let me tell you what I came to church for today. And it's to discuss different writing styles. I just really wanted to get into the grammar of scripture. I know, but I'm telling you, once you see this in Mark's writing style, it is actually so interesting how his writing style reveals to us this answer of Jesus as the suffering servant. First of all, I just want to confess out loud, this is a place where we want Christians to be honest. Mark was usually my least favorite gospel. Is that okay to say? It's because it's the shortest one. It's only 16 chapters of the four gospels. It's only 16. And I'm the kind of person, I like the three-hour movies. I like the hidden Easter eggs. I want to know the inner dialogue of every character. I want to know the things that I can go research later that is all fan theories of what's possibly going on behind the scene. But Mark don't write like that. Mark's like, let's keep the story moving. No massive detail. We just got to, we got to, we got to keep going. And why is this? Well, the first reason is because Mark is writing actually to a Roman audience. And the culture of the day, kind of like in America, you know, we're like, give me the story and give it to me quick. What are the plot? Give me the highlights. What are the plot lines? Let's go. Get me to the ending. So he's writing this in a way that it carries the Roman audience along who are like, so what's going on? And also, unlike Matthew that we just heard about last week, who was written to a mainly Jewish audience, 
in the Roman society, they wouldn't have had the background like the Jewish people had with like the prophecies and the, the background of the faith and what they were looking for in the Messiah, like the whole genealogy thing that Brad talked about last week. Jewish people would have been like all about that. Oh yes, like this person begot this person, begot this person. Roman audience is like, why? They would have been skipping over chapter one just like us. So Mark writes knowing I gotta get them to the point. And not only that, Mark also uses 40 times, around 40 times this word immediately. Jesus immediately was taken into the wilderness. He called James and John at once. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. Over and over again, it's like, he's like, and then this happened, and then this happened. Why is he doing this? It's like, he just wants to keep the story moving. It's like, the way that he writes keeps your heart rate up. It's like, one commentator even said um, that he sees history as flashes of lightning. I love that. What's Mark trying to do by writing like this? His style, drawing the audience quickly into the story and maintaining their attention until we get to the cross. And it's almost like you can feel in Mark's urgency, I can't wait to get you to the cross. I can't wait to get you to see what Jesus did. I can't wait for the cross to be revealed to you. Come on, we gotta get through these things so you can see that Jesus is the suffering servant whose pain and sacrifice has secured your salvation. It's like his writing style is constantly propelling you to the cross. There's this beautiful quote that I read, a commentator who wrote about this, and he says this. Mark is so full of his great subject, Christ, so wrapped up in the contemplation of his divine hero that he hurries from point to point with his favorite word immediately that I'm not even gonna try to pronounce as if in breathless haste to reach the vantage ground of the cross, the resurrection morning, followed by the triumphant ascension into heaven on the session at the right hand of God. Mark's writing style is propelling us to the end, the cross and the resurrection. And as I was preparing, I just felt like I was supposed to pause right here and ask us saints, what if your pain could be seen as a tool in the hand of God propelling you actually to the end of the story? What if our, I'm telling you, the older I get, the more I see pain, every moment I feel suffering as actually revealing to me, you know what, I wasn't made for here. And my pain is increasing my appetite. I just wanna see Jesus. I'm ready for that res resurrection morning. I'm ready for that return. And I'm just wondering, what if our pain could be seen as propelling us to that same realization? Mark's writing style shows us this beauty of Jesus as the suffering saint. And not only that, do you see it in Mark's writing style, you also see it in Peter's, Peter's famous response. Many of you will have heard what I'm about to read to us, but I just love my dude Peter. I so identify with Peter. And there's this awesome story that happens right in the middle of Mark's gospel in Mark 8, 27 through 33. Let's look at what happens. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, well, you are the Christ. Everybody say, yay, Peter. Yay, Peter. Well done. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 
And then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Everybody say, whoa, Peter. (laughs) But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Okay. Peter goes straight from a yay moment to a woe moment. Verse 29, yay, right answer, Peter. He is the Christ. Then verse 32, what are you doing, Peter? Rebuking Jesus. I read this and I go, whoa. A little bit of fear pops up in my heart of like, can you imagine looking in the face of Jesus and rebuking him? But let me tell you what was going on with Peter. Peter rebukes Jesus because he had the right answer to who Jesus was, but the wrong understanding of what that was going to mean. The wrong understanding of what, excuse me, the right answer of who Jesus was, Savior. But the wrong understanding of what that was going to mean, suffering. For the Jewish people, Peter included, they would have thought of the Savior coming uh, to free them in more obvious ways. A a massive political power or um, a conqueror who was going to lead an army to to help free the Jewish people or um, maybe he was going to lead this massive revolution that would be obvious to the world but Jesus says no I'm I'm savior but I'm not coming to fulfill all political power I'm savior but I'm not going to lead an army to conquer. I am Savior, but I'm not going to start some massive, obvious revolution. I'm a Savior who is going to free his people through his suffering. And when Peter hears this, his answer of Savior does not match up of his expectation of suffering, and so he rebukes Jesus. Now, before we come at Peter, I need us to realize no one thought the Messiah was going to come like this. Jewish people didn't Messiah like this. Roman people didn't Messiah like this. We don't see Messiah like this. And my prayer today is that as we behold Jesus as suffering servant, that we would understand that just because we have the right answer of Jesus as Savior, sometimes we are rebuking him because he does not meet our expectations of what that's going to take. Through Jesus' own answer, we see that suffering is one of the main ways that salvation is going to come. Not just through his sacrifice, but it's also the way that salvation has its full work in us. Can I see by the hands of any saints that suffering has actually revealed to you the beauty, the glory, the closeness of God, maybe more than anything else in your life, my hand is raised. Jesus came as a savior not to meet our expectations of what we think that should look like. But he says, I'm going to fulfill it through suffering. And Peter just didn't get it yet. But I'm thankful that the story keeps moving with number three. Happens right after this in Jesus' invitation and declaration. I love this. I just feel so, I feel like a weather woman. Jesus' invitation and declaration. So right after this encounter with Peter happens, it keeps going and Jesus doubles down on this suffering thing in verses 34 to 35 in chapter eight. And Jesus calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, hey, if anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Why would I ever want to do that? (laughs) Can I get an amen from any honest saints in the room? Whoever would come after me, deny yourself, don't really want to do that. Take up a cross, a symbol of death, don't really want to do that. And follow me. Why would I want to join in that invitation, Jesus? Well, it's because of his declaration in Mark 10, 45. Jesus says, even about himself, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Watch out because the gospel is coming straight to you. The word ransom right here is showing us that the sacrifice of Jesus indeed does something. Suffering does something for us. For the word ransom here in Greek literally, literally means to loosen bonds by divine strength. Jesus was saying that through his sacrifice and suffering, through his death, that he will free his people from oppression and the tyranny of sin and death. Jesus is saying that through his suffering and sacrifice, that this is why he came, that this is who he is, that we no longer have to bow our knee to the culture of tides, to the narrative of society, to powers that humanity has tried to create to control and concoct some kind of sense of power on the earth that his death and sacrifice has loosened those bonds. That you are not a slave anymore to your own desires and just whatever you want to do, that you've been freed from this. We are delivered from the demonic powers that enslave the world and resist God's purposes. We have now been released from sin, reunited to God and reunited to his family through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is what his suffering and sacrifice did. And because of that, we know, we can know that suffering and sacrifice are no longer pointless. Every moment of pain is no longer pointless because Jesus said both of these statements, hey, come and die and this is who I am, a ransom for many, right in front of his boys his 12, his followers, his friends. And what he's saying is, hey, when you take up your cross and follow me, when you choose to enter into the same identity as a suffering servant, you do so knowing what suffering for my name can do. Not only does my suffering release you from the power of sin, it releases you to a new power of suffering. Did you know that suffering now has power when you join with Jesus Christ? I know it doesn't make any sense in our human understanding. But because of what Jesus did, suffering now can have power. The apostle Paul amended this himself, who was very well acquainted with suffering and sacrifice. Look what he says in his letter to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, he says this. So we do not lose heart, saints, Get your hopes up again. Do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, 
momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. My gosh. Here's what Paul is saying. If you were to take all of your suffering and put it on this side of the eternal scale, and you were to take all the glory of God that's been secured for us in Jesus Christ and put it on this side of the eternal scale, the glory would far outweigh the sacrifice.